Friends, good morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Revelation chapter 15. 15, yeah. Thank you for that. I have Exodus on the brain today. You'll find out why in just a minute. So we've already read a good portion of it in our scripture reading today. I want to encourage you to uh, return next Lord's Day uh, to hear Pastor Brian preach. I'll be away with my wife celebrating our 38th wedding anniversary. It's like a lifetime with somebody, right? Yeah, never mind. Um, uh, so do come here, Pastor Brian, continuing to talk on uh, not leaving the basics. And he'll uh, be preaching on the topic of suffering that we all frequently need to hear truth about. So look forward to hearing Pastor Brian next Lord's Day. If you uh, look at uh, our passage this morning, we have uh, jumped into chapter 15 this week. Uh, this portion will bring this section on the Holy War to a conclusion. We've been in this for several weeks now, chapters 12, 13, 14, and the very beginning of 15, the Holy War will conclude. If you remember, and even if you don't, we started uh, this uh, last chapter, chapter 14, uh, the Lamb and, and the 144,000, which I said represent all the redeemed of all ages, standing and singing in the throne room of God to the Lamb, singing a new song uh, before the Lamb. But uh, John really never told us how they got out of the Holy War and got through the Holy War. And so for the rest of chapter 14, that's what he does. He, first of all, uh, brings us a word of the three warnings in the final hour. And then uh, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 14, he talks about the final harvest, the harvest of the wheat, uh, that is the rapture of believers and the harvest of grapes. Uh, that is the harvest of unbelievers and the wrath of God poured out on them. A couple heavy sermons last couple weeks, and we, we'll be on a much better note today uh, as we get into chapter 15, because again, we'll see these saints, the 144,000 standing in the throne room of God uh, where uh, they will appear uh, and be with the Lord for all eternity. So, if you could follow that lengthy introduction, let me read our passage today, Revelation 15, uh, verses 2 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. Let's ask for his help as we look into these verses this morning. Now, Father, do uh, quicken me and strengthen me and help me to think and preach clearly and quicken our hearts in the room with your good spirit. Pour him out afresh and encourage us as we see believers standing in your throne room, Heavenly Father, singing your praises Encourage us with these words this morning. Savior, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, in the early years of World War II, uh, there were many in the United States who didn't want anything to do with the expanding war in Europe and Southeast Asia. And so uh, a large segment of our population felt that the United States should not interfere in the affairs of other nations, especially those nations that were on the other side of the world, other continents. They, sh they believed we should not involve ourselves in, in foreign entanglements. This 
sentiment in the public, uh, a large portion of the public, was one reason why Frank, Frank Capra uh, was commissioned to produce a series of documentaries There we go. Was it you or me? Did you do that? Okay, all right. Anyway, Frank Capper was commissioned to produce a series of documentaries for the War Department entitled Why We Fight. Seven films uh, that he produced. They described uh, to the American public the things that were uh, taking place in Northern Europe as well as in the South Pacific. Uh, these documentaries explained what, what the United States was fighting for, the principles uh, we were fighting for. And you, you, of course, remember he went on to produce It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart that we all watch at Christmas. But uh, our passage this morning that we've just read could be considered the Apostle John's version of why we fight. Uh, remember, he wrote Revelation to a church facing persecution from the Roman government. The church in John's era was facing great difficulty and opposition from the world around them. Uh, he's been explaining the source of that opposition in this middle section of Revelation, the Holy War, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and this small part of chapter 15. You can well imagine that many of the people who read this letter uh, were weary from fighting the holy war. Uh, they faced isolation and economic hardship because they did not worship false gods, and so they were excluded from society. Uh, they encountered persecution from the state and possibly even death because they would not bow down and worship the Roman emperor who demanded to be called Lord and God. They endured the constant temptation of a sexually permissive culture. And John seems to be writing revelation to people who are asking, is the holy war really worth it? John, why are we fighting this war? They seem to need their own version of why we fight. And maybe you're asking the same question this morning. Is the holy war we're in really worth it? Dr. Joel Beakey put it like this. On the earth sometimes we feel besieged by sickness, sorrow, and strife. Enemy bullets seem to be striking all around us. We might be tempted to ask, is this battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh really worth the price? Is fighting my besetting sin worth the struggle of resisting? Is, is it worth the effort to resist the constant allurements of this world? Pastor Rob, why do we fight? Why is the holy war worth it? This is a question our passage addresses this morning. Uh, comparing our final exodus, when Christ returns, to the exodus of Israel from Egypt, John tells his readers and us, yes, yes, the holy war is worth it. The holy war is worth fighting the holy war is worth every ounce of blood and sweat and toil and tears that we experience because of our final exodus when Christ comes. At our final exodus, it will be worth it all. What is it about this final exodus that makes the holy war worth fighting? John describes three features of the final exodus in today's passage. There, there are three features in these verses uh, describing the final exodus that keep us fighting the holy war. The first feature we encounter in our passage uh, of the final exodus is the saints are safely through 
the saints are safely through. Just as Israel passed safely through the Red Sea, we see believers pass safely through the sea as well. Let me point out two things about this. The first thing I want, I want you to notice, the sea of glass that our passage describes. Verse 2, it says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. What is this sea of glass that John refers to? Uh, the first time he mentioned this was back in chapter 4 in the throne room of God, and he wrote these words in chapter 4, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This was the first time John had seen the throne room of heaven. And surrounding the throne room was this amazing uh, sea-like uh, appearance of transparent crystal. But even before this, this uh, throne room description in uh, Revelation 4, <clears throat> the Bible mentions this same crystal sea all the way back in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, the Lord has called Moses and the elders of Israel, uh, summoned them up Mount Sinai to confirm their covenant with him. And there in Exodus 24, Moses wrote these words, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Not only Moses, but also the prophet Ezekiel saw this same thing in those incredible visions <coughs> Excuse me, of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. It seems that this crystal-like payment before the throne of God, the sea of glass that we're reading about in verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, formed the floor of heaven and the ceiling of earth, the ceiling of the created universe. This sea of glass serves as, as a kind of divider between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Now, the Reformation Study Bible says uh, describes it as the vault of the sky under the throne. Dr. Doug Kelly says the crystal sea corresponds to the sapphire pavement seen by Moses on Mount Sinai. From above, it is clear crystal, but from below, it looks blue. This, of course, makes you wonder about looking up on a clear day, you know, like a, like a two-way mirror or a one-way mirror, and wonder who's looking back at you on the other side. Well, to begin with, the sea of glass John mentions is before the throne of God, forms the floor of heaven, as well as the ceiling of the universe. It's the divider between heaven and earth. But going further in verse 2, we see believers have been delivered safely through this sea. Uh, let's look at verse 2 again and, and go a little further. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Last Sunday morning we saw believers raptured, snatched up to be with the Lord in the wheat harvest. Uh, that was in verses 14 through 16 of the previous chapter. And then after God pours out his wrath on the wicked at the end of chapter 14, uh, here we see believers standing in the presence of God safely delivered through the sea of glass, that divider between heaven and earth. And so this sea of glass is the first thing that we see uh, in our passage this morning. But I want to move on and show you here uh, the similarities next, the similarities between Israel crossing the Red Sea and believers crossing this sea of glass. And there are three similarities I want to point out to you uh, between Israel and believers. First, we're pursued like Israel was. Like Israel at the Red Sea, we're being pursued by our adversary, the devil. And just as Pharaoh and the army of Egypt were hot on the heels of Israel, trapping them against the Red Sea, so the great dragon 
Satan, that ancient serpent, together with the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth and his demonic hordes, his principalities and powers pursue and harass the saints of God here on earth, trapping us, as it were, against the, red, uh, against the sea. Remember what John said in chapter 12 about the, the dragon. It said that then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Uh, the dragon is pursuing us like Pharaoh pursued Israel. And remember Paul's description from Ephesians 6, for, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, heavenly places. Like Israel pursued by Pharaoh with the Red Sea, so you and I are pursued on this side of the sea by our enemy, the devil. But there's another similarity that I want to point out, not only are we pursued like Israel was pursued, we're also protected like Israel was protected at the Red Sea. The very presence of God protected them and, and shielded them from, from, from Pharaoh, and so God's very presence protects us from the assaults of the dragon. Just a few moments ago, we read these verses. It said, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And, and here in Revelation, we've seen that saints are also protected. We are protected by the seal of God, the name of God, and the name of Christ written on our foreheads. We read about this in chapter in chapter 7, where John said, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Those very same Servants of God, believers of all ages, we discover here at the beginning of chapter 14, safely standing in the presence of God. Same group now here in chapter 15. Like Israel, we too are protected. And there's one more similarity between us and Israel. Uh, they were surrounded, and we as well, are surrounded by the very providence of God that surrounds and guards us from the flood of his wrath. I want you to hear Charles Spurgeon describe this uh, to us. He says, like a wall of glass, the sea stands on either side of Israel, frowning with beetling cliffs of foam. I don't really know what that means. Beetling cliffs of foam. But still on they march, and until the last of God's Israel is safe and the water stands still and firm, frozen by the lips of God, such, my hearers, is the position of God's church now. You and I are marching through a sea, the floods of which are kept upright only by the sovereign power of God. O oh, living army of the living God, you, like Israel, keep the floods of providence still standing fast. But when the last of you shall be gone from this stage of action, God's fiery wrath and tremendous anger shall dash down upon the ground where you now are standing. And your enemies shall be overwhelmed in the place through which you now walk safely. Like Israel, at the Red Sea, we're surrounded by the providential care of God that protects us from the flood of his wrath. There are similarities then, secondly, between Israel and believers. Believers will also be safely delivered through the sea of glass, standing in the presence of God on the other side. Uh, and like Israel, we're pursued by an enemy, we're protected by God's very presence 
and we're surrounded by God's providence. Saints are safely through. This is why the holy war is worth it. One day, you will awaken to be safely on the other side of the crystal sea. And it will be worth it. There's a second feature of this final exodus that I want to point out to you. Not only are the saints safely through, also we find the enemies are submerged. The second feature of this final exit is that the enemies of God and of his church are submerged uh, and face their final end. Let me point out two things to you. One is their final end to begin with, the final destination of our enemies. Verse 2 again, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. There's a wide range of opinion on what it means that this sea of glass is mingled with fire. A lot of diverse opinions, but we remember that fire is often a means of uh, a means God uses for judgment in the book of Revelation. And so this probably relates to judgment on the wicked below the sea of glass. Uh, uh, while the saints stand behind, beside the sea of glass in the throne room of heaven, the enemies of God and his people are finally vanquished on earth below and delivered to their final end in the lake of fire. As we go further in our study, we'll see this uh, more clearly in chapter 19 and 20, the final end of our enemies. Uh, for example, the beast, uh, of the beast, uh, the, the persecuting and nations of the world. Chapter 19 says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And that old serpent, the devil, our ancient adversary, of him, chapter 20, describes his final end. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is their final end, uh, 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 the final end of God's enemies, the final uh, uh, end of our enemies, submerged, as it were, beneath the sea finally vanquished in the lake of fire. Well, again, I want to point out some similarities uh, between uh, us and Israel. Consider the similarities between their enemies and ours. I'm referring to Pharaoh and the army of Egypt. And again, there's three similarities I want to point out and uh, show to you. One is their fierceness. Uh, Think of that bloodthirsty band pursuing the Israelites after they realize what they've done and releasing them. They pursue them hot on their heels and trap them at the Red Sea. And Moses describes their ferocity in his song in Exodus 15. Uh, he writes, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. I want you to think now of the ferocity of our enemies and his hosts. Like Pharaoh, they seek to destroy, as Jesus said in John 10, uh, 10 uh, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And, and Peter writes this familiar Passage, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so like Israel at the Red Sea, you and I also face a fierce enemy that's out to destroy and devour. Second, I want you to think about the fear that the army of Pharaoh produced in the Israelites. Again, let me quote Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Their, their hearts have melted. And I think of the fear that Satan and his cohorts produce in your heart. In our hearts. That fear that wakes you in the middle of the night. That fear after that dreaded phone call. Paul had to warn Timothy about this fear from the enemy. And we see Paul's caution in the opening verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says to this young man, for this reason I, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. And then John, the Apostle John had to, had to warn the church of this same fear in the book of 1 John. And so he writes there, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And like Israel of old, you and I have an, have an enemy able to produce great fear. But then, now I want you to think not only of their ferocity and their fear they produce, think of the finality of their defeat. Uh, listen to the route, again, from Exodus 14. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Think of the finality of Pharaoh's defeat the army of Egypt crushed beneath the Red Sea. And then think of the finality of Satan's defeat that took place at the cross. Paul describes it in second, uh, excuse me, Colossians 2. He, Christ, disarmed. Word means stripped them of their power. The rulers evil rulers we're talking about, and satanic authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or in it, meaning in the cross. He stripped them of their power in the cross. It's because of this final defeat, though we still battle him until he is finally vanquished at the end. His defeat is complete at the cross. And it's because of this defeat at the cross that Paul says we are more than conquerors in Romans 8, super conquerors, that we overwhelmingly conquer. And at the end of Romans, Paul writes these incredible words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we see that crushing and that defeat, and that super conquering here in verse 2. Look at it again. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. It's because of that defeat at the cross that believers conquer as we see here we will overwhelmingly conquer the devil and his henchmen and stand beside the great sea of glass in the presence of Christ. Like Israel of old, we fight a defeated and submerged enemy who will one day face their final end in the lake of fire, completely vanquished by Christ. And so secondly, we see 
the, the enemies submerged. We see their final end in the lake of fire, but also the similarities between Pharaoh and our enemies. This keeps us fighting. This keeps us fighting. This is why the holy war is worth it. Because we will see the enemy finally submerged. One more feature of this final exodus that I want to point out to you. Uh, We've seen the saints safely through, the enemy submerged, and thirdly here, the final feature of this exodus is the song on the shore. We will sing a song of victory on the far shore of the crystal sea. Let me point out two things to you here. Let me draw your attention to the song that's mentioned. Uh, it Beginning at the very end of verse 2, that last phrase, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This means you will suddenly know how to play the harp. A skill for many of you uh, will be very grateful, as will the rest of us standing next to you there. Uh, But go on into verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of lamb of the lamb. Why is why is is it referred to as the song of Moses, as well as the song of the lamb? Well, he calls it the song of Moses because again, John is drawing a parallel between what happened with Israel at the Red Sea and what will happen with us at the last at the at the last Exodus. Just as God delivered Israel from Egypt by drowning. Pharaoh in the Red Sea, so God will deliver us from Satan, the beast and the false prophet, by submerging them below the sea of glass and below the lake of fire. Israel experienced God's salvation and sang on the shores of the Red Sea, and and the followers of Christ will experience God's salvation on the last day and also sing on the far shore of the glassy sea. Dr. Beakey explains what those Israelites experienced at the Red Sea thousands of years ago is what the church of God will enjoy when Jesus returns. Then we will sing both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. That's why John calls it the song of Moses. He's drawing a parallel between these two. But he also refers to it as the song of the Lamb because we'll be singing about the salvation that Jesus the Lamb secured for us on the cross the redemption that he purchased by dying as our substitute. Peter refers to it this way in in 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed. It's a very important New Testament word. Friend, you were purchased. A price was paid for you. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ secured your redemption through the payment of his blood. So I must ask, have you been purchased by the lamb? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord and turned to Him and His payment for sin on the cross? Have you cast yourself on Christ and surrendered yourself to Him that He might be your substitute? This is the song of Moses, that song like the one Israel sang, and the song of the Lamb, the song of our redemption. This is the song that we'll be singing, but, but what's the substance of the song? What, what are the stanzas? What are the lyrics? Well, this is what we see next in verses 3 and 4. I want you to see the stanzas. I want you to hear the lyrics that you and I will be singing on that glassy sea as we stand before 
uh, the throne of God and the Lamb. We heard uh, part of Moses' song in our scripture reading back in Exodus 15. I'll just remind you of, of, of the beginning of that song. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I, I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Uh, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Our song will be slightly different. The substance will be a little uh, uh, different from Moses. We'll still be singing about God's triumph, but with different lyrics than Moses. And our song has four verses, four stanzas to you. And I just want to walk through these and, and, and uh, describe them to you. Uh, beginning in verse 3, uh, right there in the middle, we'll look at verse 1. Uh, the first verse comes in the middle of verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Look at your text, if you would. The word great means uh, 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 something remarkable, out of the ordinary. Uh, the word amazing, uh, something that creates wonder, something that stirs up amazement in you. And, and deeds refers to the actions of God here. And then look at the title of God next. O Lord God, the Almighty. Lord God describes the sovereign majesty of God, the supreme ruler of all things. And then that majestic title, the Almighty. Uh, the Greek term, pantokrator. It just rolls off the tongue and sounds so awesome. It refers to the God who, as the one who possesses all power and might. He's the all-powerful one and, and the invincible one. And if you take those words and put them all back together, uh, uh, in, verse, in verse 1 we'll be singing something like this. The work of the all-powerful one is breathtaking. It's what we'll be singing on the other side of the crystal sea. Because we will see the incredible complex, uh, complex work of God's sovereignty. You and I will grasp the infinite wisdom and intelligence required for God to carry out His sovereign purposes for all things. All throughout the universe, how everything fit together just perfectly. I tell you, our mouths will hang open. Our jaws will be slack at the sheer brilliance of what God has done. And this is only the first verse. And the second verse follows there in verse 3. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Again, just let me walk you through these words. Just means legally and ethically right, correct, proper, fitting, completely appropriate. True refers to something that agrees with revealed truth, something that conforms to God's perfect standard. Ways here in verse 3 refers to God's actions, his, his course of conduct. And then again, his title, O King of the Nations, describes God again as sovereign ruler of all things, the one who rules everyone and everything. And take those words and put them together. In verse 2, we'll sing this stanza, Our world sovereign has done what is right. Our world sovereign has done what is right there on the shore of that crystal sea. You and I will have every one of our why questions answered. Lord, why did he have to die? 
Lord, why did you allow this sickness? Lord, why did I lose my job? Lord, why this? Lord, why that? Lord, why? And at that moment on the crystal sea, you and I will grasp with complete clarity how fair and right and appropriate God's conduct has been both in your individual life and throughout the world. We will grasp at that moment that God's actions were completely fair, completely just, and that he could not have acted in a way other than he did. It will be a verse about the perfect conduct of the world sovereign. Our world sovereign has done what is absolutely right. We go on to the third verse, and we see that one in verse 4 of our passage. Uh, the third verse, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Uh, who will not fear? It's a rhetorical question. It means that after hearing the first two verses of our song, everyone should fear and glorify your name. Fear not meaning terror, but, but reverence and awe. And glorify meaning to magnify, to add to someone's greatness, to praise them. Your name here refers to the sum of all that God is, all of his attributes. And then holy is a very specific word, and this word means free and undefiled by sin. It means absolute moral purity free from any form of wickedness, whatever. And so if you take those and put them back together, in this verse, we'll sing something like this. Let everyone, in, let everyone stand in awe of God's stunning holiness. I think as you and I stand on the shore of the Crystal Sea, I think we'll be struck by our creatureliness. We'll probably, like the angels in Isaiah 6, wish we had wings to cover ourselves with. And the only reason we won't melt in God's presence is because we'll be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let everyone stand in awe of God's Stunning holiness. I want you to think about this for just a moment longer. That you will be standing in the presence of utter, complete perfection. I often try to express my admiration for my wife's cooking. And I express it vocally at the table, usually with mmm. Or this is awesome. Or some kind of grunt or sign of approval. <laughs> because I think it's perfect. I tell her never to change her brownie recipe. Which she likes to do. Because I think it's perfect. And there are some here today. But what will it be like to stand in the presence of absolute perfection? We know nothing of perfection. Thank God we'll be clothed by Christ's righteousness as we stand there on the glassy sea That's verse 3. One more verse of our song. Uh, and that continues in verse 4. Just and true... Oh, excuse me, I'm back in verse 3. Uh, in verse 4, uh, here's verse 3. Who will not fear, O Lord, and, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. 
for your righteous acts have been revealed. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Worship refers to falling on your knees or laying prone on the ground before a sovereign. Righteous acts, again, actions that conform perfectly to a law or standard. And this, of course, will be God's standard. They conform to to God Himself. His actions will be right because He is righteous. And then, have been revealed means have been made clear, have been clearly shown, have been made evident. And put this together and you get verse 4, which goes like this, fall down and worship Him for His perfect purposes. And here too, our why questions will be satisfied. We will see that what God allowed in His sovereign purpose for our lives was in reality the perfect course of action for Him to take. We will not only understand His sovereign purpose, we will also see His purpose as the perfect plan for our lives. Everything will make sense. He could not have done anything better It will all uh, come together and we'll see His plan. And we will lay prone before Him because we'll admit it was absolutely perfect what He did. All those questions you have, that broken heart you've had, And I know you don't see it now. But this is one of the reasons that makes it worth fighting on. Because one day, you will see his plan as the best course of action anyone could have ever took. It will be clear to you because he's revealed it. And we will fall down. This is what we'll be singing. Again, verse 1. Let me get to verse 1. The work of the all-powerful one is breathtaking. Our world sovereign has done what is right. Nobody knows what is just like God does. Let everyone stand, verse 3. Let everyone stand in awe of His stunning holiness and then fall down and worship Him for His perfect purposes. This is the song on the shore that you and I will sing. Is the holy war really worth it? Is it worth fighting on? Is the battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh really worth all the blood and sweat and toil and tears? The answer is absolutely yes. It is worth fighting this holy war. And at our final exodus, it will be worth it all. And the three features again we've seen uh, this morning, we'll see the saints are safely through. Just like Israel of old. And also like Israel, we'll see our enemies submerged. And third, also again, like Israel of old, we'll be singing a song on that far shore. uh, A song about the Lamb. Singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb in the presence of God in His throne room. So let me me bring this to an end today just by reading a portion of... uh, if, if, well, I was going to ask for your permission, but I've decided against that. I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it's from morning and evening, July 13th. And I want you to hear Charles Spurgeon talk about the city of our great king. Yonder city of the great king is a place of active service. Ransom spirits serve him day and night in his temple. They never cease to fulfill the good pleasure of their king. They always rest so far as ease and freedom from care is concerned and never rest in the sense of indolence or inactivity. Jerusalem the golden is the place of communion with all the people of God. We shall sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in eternal fellowship. 
We shall hold high converse with the noble host of the elect, all reigning with him who by his love and his potent arm has brought them safely home. We shall not sing solos, but in chorus shall we praise our king. Again, thank God, no solos in eternity. Heaven is a place of victory realized. Whenever, Christian, thou hast achieved a victory over thy lusts, whenever, after hard struggling, thou hast laid a temptation dead at thy feet, you have in that hour a foretaste of the joy that awaits you when the Lord shall shortly tread Satan under your feet, and you shall find yourself more than a conqueror through him who has loved you. Paradise is a place of security. When you enjoy the full assurance of faith, you have the pledge of that glorious security which shall be yours when you are a perfect citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, my sweet home Jerusalem, you happy harbor of my soul, thanks even now to him whose love hath taught me to long for you, but louder thanks eternity when I shall possess you. And Spurgeon quotes, My soul has tasted of the grapes, and now it longs to go where my dear Lord his vineyard keeps and all the clusters grow. Upon the true and living vine, my famished soul would feast and banquet on the fruit divine, an everlasting guest. Lord Christ, I pray you would fill us with hope and the will to keep fighting when we consider our final exodus, and what we'll encounter on the far shore. We will understand then that it has been worth it all. Please, Lord Jesus, help us understand now on this side of the sea that it is worth fighting for. It is worth resisting temptation. It is worth disciplining our children. It is worth bearing up under suffering. It is worth plodding through depression, all to reach the far shore when we will stand on the glassy sea, Christ Jesus, as more than conquerors because of you who have loved us. Strengthen us to keep fighting, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.